The Bradford Exchange presents The Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Welcome, everyone, to episode 91 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater featuring programming from the golden age of radio. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to never miss an episode. This time, we'll hear two half-hour detective episodes of Sherlock Holmes. Stick around. We'll be right back. Created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the legendary violin-playing detective and his loyal companion were first heard on the air in 1930. Doyle wrote 56 short stories and four novels based on the Holmes character. Radio scriptwriter Edith Miser handled all the adaptations during the first decade, and when material was running low, the Conan Doyle estate gave her permission to create original mysteries. The stories have been dramatized so often and by so many performers in every known entertainment medium that listing them would require volumes of footnotes. Of all the Sherlock Holmes dramas broadcast on radio, however, the most popular starred Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, which ran from 1939 until 1946. Too many, these fine Hollywood actors represented the quintessential Holmes and Dr. Watson. Nigel Bruce, playing a retired Watson, usually functioned as the narrator, entertaining listeners with his accounts of his adventures alongside the eccentric detective. Following Rathbone's departure from the series in 1946, Tom Conway played Holmes to Nigel Bruce's Dr. Watson. In 1947, both Conway and Bruce were replaced by John Stanley and Alfred Shirley, with Shirley replaced by Ian Martin for the 1948-49 season. Regardless of who performed the roles of Holmes and Watson, the quality of the stories remained constant. Well-crafted, atmospheric, and never sensationalized, these were good, solid mysteries, and the millions of listeners who sat back in their easy chairs, cup of hot tea or coffee in hand, thoroughly enjoyed them. Time now for the first of two detective episodes of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. In this first one, a wealthy man is being driven crazy and possibly to suicide. Here's The Strange Case of the Persecuted Millionaire, starring Tom Conway as Holmes, with Nigel Bruce as Watson, on the adventures of Sherlock Holmes from February 10th, 1947. Tonic and Kreml Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) 
Well, once again, it's time to keep that weekly date with our old friend and genial host, Dr. Watson. I'm sure he's expecting us, so let's join him, shall we? Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Bell. As you can see, I'm quite ready for you. A crackling fire in the grate, some port in the decanter over there, and although I smoke a pipe myself, I think you'll find those cigars rather special. All the fixings for a session of storytelling, eh, Dr. Watson? Well, which particular Sherlock Holmes adventure have you selected for tonight? A story that I call The Strange Case of the Persecuted Millionaire. Mm, sounds promising. In some respects, my boy, I think this is one of the, one of the oddest adventures that we ever had. It's a case in which Sherlock Holmes narrowly prevented a shocking tragedy, and yet, at the conclusion of the affair, he appeared in a most unusual role. The role of a rather lean and elderly Cupid. This I've got to hear. But before you begin, Dr. Watson, do you mind if I... Uh... Have a word with our listeners? Of course not, Mr. Bell, of course not. Men, neat-looking, well-groomed hair does so much to give a man that air of success, to say nothing of adding to his good looks. And I'm sure you'll be interested in hearing more about this modern trend in hair grooming, which has become such a nationwide favorite. It's called Cremel Hair Tonic. This highly specialized hair tonic contains a combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. Yes, that's exactly why Kreml gives a man's hair such a natural, well-groomed look and keeps it in place longer, keeps every lock in perfect order from morning till night. Yet Kreml never gives hair that cheap, greasy, patent leather look. Kreml keeps hair looking mighty handsome with a rich, healthy-looking luster, yet it always feels and looks so clean on your hair and scalp. Men, if you aren't already using a hair tonic, try Kreml. If you're using some other hair dressing, change to Kreml. Just see if your hair doesn't look much better than it ever did before. Better groomed, better looking. K-R-E-M-L, Kreml hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, I want to hear about the strange case of the persecuted millionaire. Well, Mr. Bell, that adventure began in Baker Street on a gray November day at the turn of the century. Sherlock Holmes and I had just finished our lunch, I remember, and were sitting each side of a blazing fire just like you and I are tonight. The great man, his feet thrust out before him, was lying back in his chair, his long, thin hands locked behind his head, and a curved pipe jutting out the corner of his mouth was emitting great clouds of grey-blue smoke. After a few moments, I noticed that he was gazing at my boots with very marked attention. But why Turkish, Watson? The boots are English. I got them at Latimer's in Oxford Street. And not the boots, the bar. Why the relaxing and expensive Turkish bath rather than the invigorating homemade article? Well, because for the last few days I've been having some nasty twinges of rheumatism. By the way, I'm sure the connection between my boots and a Turkish bath is perfectly obvious to you, Holmes, but uh, I'm completely mystified. You're in the habit of doing up your boots in a certain way. I observe that on this occasion they're tied in a double bow. You have, therefore, had them off. Who has retied them? A bootmaker? or the boy at the Turkish bath. But your boots are nearly new. Then what remains? The bath. Absurdly simple, isn't it? <laughs> when you explain it. Come in. Yes, Mrs. Hudson. It's a note for you, Mr. Holmes. A messenger boy just brought it. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Who's it from, Holmes? I swear that only reigning royalty can be as presumptuous as an American businessman. Read it for yourself. I shall be at your lodgings at two tomorrow. Be there. And it's signed John V. Harden. Be there. Huh. Sounds an extremely arrogant fellow. 
What makes you think that he's an American? The use of the initial for the middle name is peculiar to that country. Oh. I do. It's, it's nearly two o'clock now, Holmes. Yes. Let's see what we can find out about the gentleman. Where's that Cyclopedia of American Biography? Ah, here it is. H.H.A. Hanley Hanson Harden. Here's our man, Watson. John Vincent Harden. What does it say about him? Born in Chicago, 45 years old, unmarried. Chiefly noted for his tremendous tobacco interests and his addiction to fishing. It's an odd combination. And this is odder. He made his professional debut as a violinist 30 years ago. A millionaire musician. Ah, that must be him now. Yes, there's a most impressive broom and pair outside. Then, since my client is a violinist, I think I'll welcome him appropriately. Hand me my instrument, will you, old chap? Uh, Holmes? Funny way to start a business interview, I must say. Uh, Mr. Harden sounds like an aggressive man. And music hath charms to soothe. Come in. Mr. Harden to see you, sir. Thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Come in, Mr. Harden. I'm Sherlock Holmes, and this is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? If we're to do business, Mr. Holmes, for heaven's sake, put that violin away. I heard you scraping away as I came up the stairs. <laughs> so you, you don't care for my friend's playing, sir? <laughs> I don't care for anyone's playing. I loathe the fiddle. Curious. I was under the impression Listen, that... Mr. Holmes, I haven't come here to discuss your musical impressions. I've come here to talk about my personal safety and my sanity. Then pray talk about it, Mr. Harden. I'm being persecuted. Somebody's trying to drive me crazy. Oh, really? Just what form does this persecution take, Mr. Harden? Yeah, it began about a month ago. My horse ran away in Rotten Row and threw me. Maybe it was an accident, maybe not. I've heard of burrs under saddles. And then, last night... Something else happened? Someone destroyed Methuselah. Methuselah? An old retainer of yours, Mr. Harden? Or a pet? No. Methuselah was the finest, largest, oldest tarpon ever caught. A stuffed fish? You ask Sherlock Holmes? Quiet, Watson. I'm sure that a great deal more lies behind this. Please continue, Mr. Harden. Everything was going fine, Mr. Holmes, until these persecutions started. Early this year, I bought a fine old house in Cavendish Place. I'm engaged to be married to Alicia Edwards, uh, the Honorable Alicia Edwards. She's Lord Brentwood's daughter. My life was perfect until I began to get these notes. What sort of notes, Mr. Harden? Uh, they kept turning up in odd places. My coat pockets, under my pillows at night. I found them on the upholstery of my carriage. You brought these notes with you? Of course. Hmm... All in the same handwriting, and all the messages seem to have the same theme. Oh, what do they say, Holmes? The first one says, you thought he had no one to avenge him, didn't you? And this one says, you murdered him, you will pay for it. And this is curious. It will have blood. They say blood will have blood. That quotation is from Macbeth. Oh, then that means the note was written by an Englishman. Not necessarily, Watson. It's possible that they've heard of Shakespeare in America, you know. Oh, yes, I suppose it might have. Mr. Harden, all these messages threaten your death. Can you think of anyone who might wish to kill you? No, I can't. I've never heard anyone, much less killed a person. The notes don't make any sense. Do you recognize the handwriting? 
I've never seen it before in my life. You mentioned that your prize tarpon was mutilated. What members of your household might have had the opportunity of performing that uh, act of vandalism? Mm, three people. My secretary, Margaret Bates, Stephen, my brother, and my fiancé. They were all at the house last night. There seems to be a clear pattern to this case, Mr. Harden. I suggest that you return to your home and obtain for me samples of the handwriting of the three people you've mentioned. When I've examined those, I shall be in a better position to advise you in this matter. Holmes, you've spent three hours with a magnifying glass and those samples of handwriting that Mr. Harden brought back. Have you found a clue? Nothing positive, Watson. It's quite curious. The handwriting of the threatening note seems to be that of a male with an American education. Oh, why do you say that? Observe this note. Who dies unavenged can never sleep with honor. You'll notice that honor is spelt without a U. That's the American way. Then that means that his fiancée didn't write him. She might have deliberately spelt it that way to remove suspicion from herself. No, I'm afraid these samples prove nothing. Then we're no nearer finding out who's responsible. Well, at least we've ruled out an obvious possibility. Come in. Yes, Mrs. Hudson. It's a telegram, Mr. Holmes. Thank you. Yes, sir. Better get your coat and hat, Watson. It's from Mr. Harden? Yes. He says, a worse blow has fallen. Come at once. <laughs> I'm Margaret Bates, Mr. Harden's secretary. How do you do? How do, you do? What happened, Miss Bates? We left as soon as we received his wire. I don't know what happened, Mr. Holmes, but I'm terribly worried. He rushed out here, dictated that telegram, and then went back and locked himself in the study. He says he'll see no one but you. Hello, Margaret. Oh, Stephen, you startled me. What's the matter? Do you think I was listening at the keyhole? Oh. Introduce me to our visitors, won't you? This is Stephen, Mr. Harden's brother, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you do? Sherlock Holmes and his friend, huh? I've heard about you. Don't tell me Brother John has fallen foul of the law. No, sir. He needs its protection, I fear. <laughs> Don't be too sure. I'm thinking of taking him to court myself on a charge of woman stealing. Your brother a kidnapper? Great Scott. No, no, Dr. Watson. It's perfectly legal. It's just that I saw Alicia Edwards first, but then, of course... I don't control the hardened millions. Let's go to the study, shall we, Mr. Holmes? An excellent idea. Perhaps we'll see you later, sir. Perhaps. And don't take John too seriously. Oh, he's hateful. Always making fun of John, uh, his brother. And yet Stephen's never done a day's work in his life. This is the door to the study. Who is it? Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson are here. Good, good. Come in. Thank you, Margaret. I'll see you gentlemen later. What form did the new attack take, Mr. Harden? This time it's theft. My safe was rifled last night. What was stolen, sir? An extremely valuable document. It was the key to my agreement with the British Tobacco Trust. The loss of the paper will represent a million dollars to me. But that isn't what upsets me most. Money I can afford to lose, but my sanity is more valuable. In the safe, I found another note, Holmes. May I see it, please? Here. Hmm. The coffin is made, the funeral parlor is ready, the time is ripe. 
the croaking raven doth bellow for revenge. Good Lord, what a frightening message. And once again observe the odd combination of Shakespeare and American idiom. Funeral parlors, what we refer to as an undertaker's, and the croaking raven comes from Hamlet. Holmes, I'm not a weak man, but I'm frightened. You've got to protect me. I shall do my best, Mr. Harden. Who was here last night? My secretary, Margaret Bates, my fiance. She went back to London this morning. I uh, met your brother, Stephen, just now. I noticed that he was carrying a valise. Was he leaving the house or returning to it? Returning. He went out of town last night. Well, then that rules him out. Not until we investigate his alibi, Watson. Mr. Harden, I'm a constant and thorough reader of the Times. The engagement of a peer's daughter to a prominent American would be striking news. And uh, yet I've read nothing about it. We're announcing it formally tomorrow. I'm giving a party at Claridge's to celebrate the event. Then I think it would be a wise precaution if Dr. Watson and I attended that party. I was about to suggest the same thing, Holmes. I need to have men about me I can trust. I think this is a deliberate plot to drive me mad. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I want you to meet my fiancée, Miss Alicia Edwards. Alicia, my dear. Yes, John. I want to introduce Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you How do? do? May I congratulate you on your engagement? Yes, indeed. A union between the old world and the new is an encouraging sign of the times. I wish you could convince Papa of that, Mr. Holmes. Whenever he meets John, he always behaves as if he expected him to be wearing feathers and carrying a scalping knife. <laughs> feathers and a knife. That's very funny. <laughs> I don't find it so. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Excuse me. I want to talk to the officer. Dear me, now I've upset John again. He's ridiculously sensitive. Americans are really rather touchy. And yet you're going to marry one? Papa's estates have eaten up a lot of money. And that's a commodity with which John seems well endowed. I think you understand me, Mr. Holmes. I'm sure I do. Personally, I may say that I'm always glad to meet an American. I'm one of those who believes that the folly of a monarch and the blundering of a minister in far gone years should not now stand between two nations... Mr. Holmes, I find you pompous and dull. Goodbye. Upon my soul, what an unpleasant, heartless young woman. She's obviously marrying Harden for his money. Obviously. Though I don't think she has an aversion to uh, all Americans. Oh? Why do you say that? She has been dancing with Mr. Harden's brother, Stephen, most of the evening. At this moment, he joined her at the door, and uh, they're leaving together. Wait, Scott, you think that the... Uh, I don't understand for this. Hello. What's happening up there on the orchestra? John Harden, he's arguing with one of the violinists. A musician. I won't take any more of it. Look, look. He snatched the instrument out of his hand. Ah, get out of here. You're not fit to fiddle in an Irish wake. Out with you. The rest of you, go on, play. Holmes. He's behaving like a madman. He's rushing after the musician and brandishing the violin as if he's, as if he's going to brain him with it. Yes, Watson. But that quarrel with the violinist was not a totally sane act. If the anonymous correspondent's motive is to undermine Harden's reason, he may be succeeding. But who has a motive? Might be the brother, Stephen. He's obviously jealous of the girl. And he probably is next in line for the Harden millions. But I checked his alibi for last night. He was out of town. Stop the music! Stop, hey! What the devil's wrong now? 
Holmes. Holmes, where are you? Here I am, Mr. Harden. Well, come with me at once. What's wrong, sir? It's Alicia. I found her in the corridor. She's been strangled. <laughs> Just a moment, we'll find out what happens next in the strange case of the persecuted millionaire. Hair specialists constantly advise us to take better care of the hair we've got. And men, don't forget that if you want your hair handsome and healthy looking, one of the first requirements is a hygienic scalp. So why settle for just any hairdressing when you can enjoy the extra advantages of this highly specialized Kremel hair tonic? Kremel contains a unique combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair preparation. It keeps hair attractively groomed at all times, looking so neat and orderly. But Kremel does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. A Kremel massage stimulates circulation right in the surface of your scalp and leaves your scalp feeling so alive and invigorated, as fresh as a daisy. At the same time, Kremel removes dandruff flakes. It's excellent to lubricate a dry scalp. And if your hair is so dry that it breaks and falls when you comb it, Kremel actually helps condition the hair in that it makes it feel softer, more pliable. So men, take better care of the hair you've got. Buy a bottle of Kremel at any drug counter. Ask for an application at your barber shop. Use Kremel daily for better groomed hair, for a more hygienic scalp. K-R-E-M-L, Kremel Hair Tonic. <laughs> Well, Dr. Watson, so the Honorable Alicia Edwards had been strangled at her engagement party. What happened next? Well, I applied first aid, Mr. Bell, and found that the girl was not dead. We rushed her to the hospital, and a few hours later, we were able to talk to her, and, uh, but we found that she could give us no clue. <clears throat> when we left the room, Harden was waiting for us in the corridor. How is she? Is she going to be all right? Oh, don't worry, Mr. Harden. She'll be all right, but she's... She had a very narrow escape. But why attack her? Why not me? The pattern becomes increasingly clear, Mr. Harden. Your enemy has struck at your fishing, your business, now at your fiancé. So every blow is at your wealth and position. And my sanity. Mr. Holmes, you've got to find out who's behind all this. On the occasion of the mutilation of the fish, three people have the opportunity. Your brother Stephen is clear on the second attack, and on this last one, I think we may reasonably assume that your fiancée did not strangle herself. Yes, I'll wager my medical reputation on that fact. And that means that only one person who was present on all three occasions was... No, you, you can't mean... Your secretary, Miss Bates? Where is she? In the waiting room. Splendid. Then Dr. Watson and I will take her back to Baker Street. I have an idea that she can be of invaluable help to us. little more tea, Miss Bates? No, thank you, Dr. Watson. Then please go on with your story. As I was saying, Mr. Holmes, I've known John, Mr. Harden, all my life. My father was the Harden coachman. And as I grew up, I thought John Vincent Harden was the most wonderful man in the world. Well, I imagine that he was quite different then, my dear. Very different. He was young and romantic, and he loved music. He took violin lessons, and it turned out that he was a prodigy. I understand that he made his professional debut at the age of 13. Yes, Mr. Holmes. I was only a little girl then. But he used to tell me that he wasn't John Vincent Harden, the heir to the tobacco millions. 
He was Giovanni Vincenti, the great violinist. Giovanni Vincenti? Odd. Uh, pray continue, Miss Bates. For five years, it seemed that he would be a great musician. Then, on his 18th birthday, his father gave him a lecture on his family obligations, told him that it was his duty to go into the business. John broke his violin across his knee, Mr. Holmes, and he's never played fit. Miss Bates, I don't need to be a detective to deduce that you, uh, that you love him. Of course I do. Or at least I love Giovanni Vincenti. And maybe he's still there. Somehow. Somewhere. Of course. I've been an idiot. A numbskull. What do you mean, Holmes? The case is solved. Come, Miss Bates. We must return to Mr. Harton as fast as we can. I only hope we're not too late. But why doesn't he answer? The servant said he locked himself in the study again. The yeah, door's locked. I don't like the look of this. Oh. Come on, Watson. We'll break it in. Once more. There's a revolver beside him, Holmes. <gasps> Miss Bates, please leave us. My friend's a doctor. He'll take care of him. He's only wounded. Yes, it's just grazed his scalp. Oh, thank heavens. I'll be waiting outside. Well, obviously, this was attempted suicide. They finally succeeded in driving him mad. Did they? Read this note lying here. It's in the same handwriting as the other messages. I might try to fool another detective, but not you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I admit I shot John Vincent Harden. I'm sure you'll have no difficulty discovering how I escaped from a locked room. Good Lord. You'll observe that the note was written and blotted on this desk. Watson, I'll see to getting Mr. Harden to bed and summoning his own doctor. I want you to return to Baker Street. To Baker Street? Why? Though the case is solved, I have some heavy thinking to do. And I must do it here. So be a good fellow and go back to our lodgings and get me two ounces of shag tobacco. And uh, my violin. How are you feeling now, Mr. Harden? Weak, Holmes. But I'm all right. You still can't remember anything, sir? No. I've felt half out of my mind since that attack was made on Alicia. They told me she'd be all right. I, I do faintly remember coming home from the hospital and locking myself in the study. Oh, the rest is a blank. What did happen, Mr. Holmes? I'll give you the complete answer very shortly, Mr. Harden. Come on, Watson. Very well. Try and rest, Mr. Harden. You've been through quite an ordeal. I'll try, Doctor. I'll try. Holmes, you left your violin in Harden's room. Did you mean to? I meant to. And in the meanwhile, we must talk more seriously to Miss Bates. Well, she's down here in the sitting room. Yes. And Brother Stevens would be her. the first to know the good news, Margaret. And may we inquire what the good news is, sir? Oh, didn't see you fellas coming down the stairs. Well, there's no reason why you shouldn't hear it, too. I've just come from the hospital. Alicia's broken off her engagement to John. She's going to marry me. Indeed. My congratulations. Yes, sir, but I suggest you don't tell your brother the news. He's a very sick man. Oh, I won't. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to celebrate. From the sparkle in your eye, Miss Bates, I can see that you're just as excited as Stevens is. Of course I am. But tell me, Mr. Holmes, 
Have you found out who attacked John? Yes, Miss Bates. At last, I know the name of Mr. John Vincent Harden's enemy. On the incident of the mutilated fish, you or Stephen or Alicia might have been guilty. On the stolen document, you or Alicia. And on the attack on that lady, you or Stephen, which seemed to leave only you. But I was having tea with both of you in Baker Street when John was shot. Precisely. As perfect an alibi as I've ever known. And no one person was responsible. There must have been accomplices. No, Watson. Oh, sir. Remember another fact. The note, supposedly written after the attempted murder, was blotted at the very desk which the wounded man was slumped over. Isn't it clear? Frankly, no. The persecutor and the would-be murderer of John Vincent Harden is Giovanni Vincenti. <gasps> but they're one and the same man. Miss Bates told us so. They were the same man. But Harden forced the dominant part of his character into annihilation. When he destroyed his violin, he thought he had destroyed Giovanni Vincenti. But his alter ego was still dormant. Yes. And after the shock of the riding accident in Rotten Row, Giovanni Vincenti emerged, hunting for revenge. You mean that poor John really has a dual personality, Mr. Holmes? Yes, my dear. No one person seemed to have the opportunity of committing all the attacks. But we left one person off our list. John Vincent Harden himself. But why, Holmes? For heaven's sake, why? Giovanni Vincenti struck at the fish, the document, and at the fiancé. All symbols of what Harden had gained for himself. Finally, he attacked Harden's life. <gasps> but, Mr. Holmes... What will happen now? He's out of his mind. They, they won't send him to an asylum, will they? I think not, Miss Bates. There's a possibility that this second shock, this uh, self-inflicted wound on the skull, may cure him. Uh, don't you agree, Watson? Yes, I do. It's perfectly <sighs> possible there'll be a complete reintegration of personality. Listen. It's John. And he hasn't touched a violin for ages. So that's why you left your violin in his room, Holmes? Exactly. Now, Giovanni Vincenti and John Vincent Harden are again one man, one whole and sound man. I trust he may create a new life for himself, and I'm convinced that he has here the woman who will help him. Ladies, you certainly must notice how men are attracted by bright, shimmering highlights in a woman's hair. Then why not follow this beauty tip from the famous Million Dollar Powers Models, girls noted for their glossy, bright hair. Powers Models wash their hair with cremel shampoo. This amazingly beautifying cremel shampoo has been especially developed so that it actually glamour bathes each tiny strand of hair and uncovers all its natural, radiant luster. Yes, and cremel shampoo never dries the hair. In fact, it has a beneficial oil base which helps keep the hair from becoming dry or brittle. Its luxurious active foam thoroughly cleanses the hair and scalp and removes all loose dandruff as well as the dirt. So, ladies, buy a bottle of Cremel shampoo at any drug counter. See how easy it is to glamour bathe your hair to a vision of tantalizing loveliness, hair shimmering with natural brilliant luster. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel shampoo. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week, I'll tell you about one of the most exciting adventures that Holmes and I ever had. I call it The Adventure of the Haunted Bagpipes. Haunted Bagpipes, huh? Where did you hear them? In Edinburgh, Mr. Bell. In the same room with three naked corpses. <laughs> Thank you.
Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Solitary Cyclist. The Sherlock Holmes series is produced by Tom McKnight with original music composed and conducted by Alex Steinert. Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of California Pictures. Tom Conway through the courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. This is Joseph Bell speaking for Kremel Hair Tonic and Kremel Shampoo and inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when Dr. Watson will tell us about the adventure of the haunted bagpipes. This is Boy Scout Week. Let's all back our scouts and their themes. Scouts of the world, building for tomorrow. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. And that's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce in The Strange Case of the Persecuted Millionaire from February 10th, 1947, is heard over ABC. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you'll receive 10 superior-sounding classic radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the stars. You'll receive your first 10 classic radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to never miss an episode. I'll have another detective episode of Sherlock Holmes after this short break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. This time, Holmes' new client is sure that her husband, a world-famous violinist, is trying to poison her. Here's the case of the very best butter, starring John Stanley as Holmes, with Alfred Shirley as Watson on The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from April 18th, 1948. W-O-R, New York. Seven o'clock by Longine, the world's most honored watch. A Longine Whitnor product. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and 1036 leading retail stores from coast to coast present the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Tonight's adventure, The Case of the Very Best Butter. Well, here we are once again on the threshold of Dr. Watson's cheerful study. The lamplight streams over the handsome bindings of his library, and the fragrance of many bowls of hyacinths fills the room. The curtains move gently in a slight evening breeze. And I, for one, am glad to sit down and just listen, Doctor. Sounds like a bad case of spring fever, Mr. Harris. (laughs) Yes, I have an idea tonight's story may make you forget that. But uh, before we discuss the case of the highly emotional lady who took a violent interest in butter, 
Suppose you say a few words on a subject every self-respecting male takes quite an interest in nowadays. Uh, you mean how to present a well-groomed appearance without bankrupting his budget. Well, this is an important announcement because it affects the cost of your living. You know very well that the cost of many things you buy has risen considerably. Some costs are still rising. The reasons are many. Increased costs of material, increased labor costs, and so on. Now, it's true manufacturing costs are higher. However, in the face of sharply mounting costs, Clippercraft brings you superbly tailored suits at only $40 and $45. Beautifully made top coats, including fine coverts and worsted gabardines, at only $40 and $45. And sport jackets at only $26.50. Tropicals, too, at $33.75 to $40. Clippercraft offers these amazing values even today because of the unique Clippercraft plan concentrating the buying power of 1036 of the nation's finest stores from coast to coast, making possible steady year-round operation, affecting tremendous savings in manufacturing and distribution costs. Only comparison will prove what this means in money saved on your spring clothing budget. Yes, compare Clippercraft with clothes selling for many dollars more. And now, Dr. Watson, back to the lady who was so interested in butter. Mm, yes, it occurred while I was sharing lodgings with Holmes at 221B Baker <laughs> Street. Honest, Injun, was there ever really such an address as 221B Baker Street? Oh, 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 this modern generation. Nothing but doubting Thomases. You know, would you believe it? Uh, there are people who go so far as to suspect that Sherlock Holmes is nothing but a figment of my imagination. Why, sacrilege, Doctor. Well, it's worse than that. So to silence all skeptics once and for all, I'd like to read a small item from that guidebook to end all guidebooks, the well-known Baedeker. It's right here on the first shelf somewhere. Yes, Baedeker's Paris, Baedeker's Rome. Oh, here we are, Baedeker's London and the Environs. Don't tell me Baker Street is actually mentioned in Baedeker. Oh, it is indeed. Yes, I have the page marked somewhere. Yes, just Melbourne Road, Queen Charlotte's Maternity Hospital. No, that's not it. Baker Street Station. Yes, here we are, Baker Street. Chief thoroughfare between Oxford Street and Melbourne Road. Mrs. Siddons lived from 1817 till her death in 1831 at number 27, Upper Baker Street. House demolished. Tablet. Lord Lytton, the novelist, was born at number 68 in 1803, tablet. And William Pitt lived in 1802-04 at number 120, tablet. Sherlock Holmes also had rooms there. Don't tell me there's no tablet at 221B, Doctor. Oh, well, not yet. Give us time. After all, Holmes is still mortal. Tablets are for the immortals, Mr. Harris. Well, that certainly should settle any doubts about Mr. Sherlock Holmes' reality once and for all. I certainly hope so. Well, as I was saying, it was uh, in the good old Baker Street days. It was rather latish of a gloomy afternoon. I remained indoors all day, for the weather had taken a sudden turn to rain, and my practice wasn't too thriving at the moment. With my body in one easy chair and my legs upon another, I listened with growing irritation to Holmes as he practiced interminable scales, roulades, glissandos, and what have you on his violin. At last, a particularly screeching dissonance was more than my frazzled nerves could bear. Holmes, must you do that? Calm yourself, my dear Watson. I was not responsible for that last bit of cacophony. It was caused by the scraping of a carriage wheel against our curb. Yes, we are about to receive a client. A rather portly lady of means, unless I'm very much mistaken. Oh, how can you possibly tell? You haven't even bothered to look out of the window. The outraged creak of the carriage springs as its passenger descended to the pavement indicates a person of substance. 
The tap of French heels on the pavement indicates the person's a lady. And the fact that the vehicle remained at the curb indicates that it's either a private carriage or a public conveyance that's been told to wait. Either eventuality indicates a person of means. Oh, I swear I heard nothing except the first scrape against the curb. I must say, Holmes, you have ears like a hawk. <laughs> your metaphor's a trifle mixed, my dear Watson, but I accept your tribute. Come in. Mr. Holmes? Mr. Holmes? Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Naturally. This is my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. Oh, how do you do? Thank heavens you're at home. You must dine with me tonight, both of you. I may need a doctor as well as a detective. Interesting. I, I mean, what brings you to that rather startling conclusion? I am in grave danger, and you are the only person who can save me. How, madam? My husband wishes to be rid of me. I am being poisoned, systematically, cold-bloodedly poisoned. That is, I was until I hired an old nurse of mine to do the cooking and refused to eat anything that wasn't served to everybody in the house on a common plate, pot or tureen. So that if poison were pleasant, all members of your household would be in equal danger. Exactly. I'm no fool. How many members of your household are there, Mrs. Uh, I am Madame de Pavan. My husband is Puvis de Pavan, the famous violinist. Oh, yes, I've heard him in concert. Remarkable technique. They tell me his trills compare favorably with Paganini. Oh, yes, Puvis is a great violinist. If you've heard him play, you have doubtless also seen my daughter, who plays his accompaniments. My husband, my daughter Therese, and myself. They are the, there are only three of us in the household. We are, I may say, the eternal triangle. Puvis is infatuated with Therese. Well, really? Your daughter, I gather, Madame de Pavan, is the child of a previous marriage. Yes and no. As a matter of fact, she's my stepdaughter, the child of my first husband by his first marriage. Rather a complicated menage, eh, Watson? Oh, quite. Huh. I was a fool to marry a man so much younger than myself. But Puvis was well, ardent. You know what these Latins are, Mr. Holmes. Mm. Swept me right off my feet. Would you believe it? He refused to eat or sleep until I named the day. It all happened in the south of France, that land of languor and romance. Oh, I see it all. The courtship, the honeymoon, the return home, the meeting with the daughter of the household, the inevitable call of youth to youth. Pubis isn't that young, Dr. Watson. I'm not a cradle snatcher. And besides, he'd known to raise long before I met him. She accompanied him on a concert tour, much against my better judgment, I will say. I sometimes think their romance may have blossomed even then. Yes, but in that case, why did Monsieur de Pavan marry you, or not your stepdaughter? Because, Dr. Watson, I happen to be the one who has the money. These um, realistic Frenchmen, eh, Watson? Mm. Uh, tell me, Madame de Pavan, when did you first suspect you were being poisoned? About a month ago. I began to have a marked distress after every meal. You don't think it could have been uh, flatulence brought on perhaps by overeating? Certainly not. I have an extraordinarily good digestion, plus an excellent appetite. Obviously. Well, I will say Pius has tried to persuade me to eat less of the fattening foods, but I tell him that here in England men appreciate fine figure of a woman. No, Mr. Holmes, I know the difference between flatulence and a definite and even painful burning sensation in the pit of my stomach. And I can guess what causes it when I see that the weed killer I keep for the garden is disappearing in the middle of the winter. Weed killer? But that's full of arsenic. I know that. I know, fool. That's why I sent Panani three weeks ago to do the cooking. What a pity you didn't come to me instead. I should have enjoyed making the Reinsch test on the contents of your stomach. Now, of course, after three weeks, it would be very difficult to prove the presence of arsenic in your system. Short of an autopsy, of course. Well, I'm not giving anyone a chance for that. 
Not if I can help it. I take it you've had no further distress since your nurse was brought in to do the cooking? No, no, that I haven't. Then why do you come to me at this late date? Because I think Pubis is getting set for another try. He leaves tonight for a concert tour of the continent. I have forbidden Therese to accompany him. But just half an hour ago, I heard them plotting together. I was counting the silver in the butler's pantry when I heard them come into the dining room. They didn't know that I was listening. I don't care what she says. I can't. I won't go without you. But you'll have to, Puvis. You have a week before your first concert. You'll be able to find another accompanist in Paris. But I don't want another accompanist, Therese. I want you. You know I can't do anything if you want with me. You've got to come with me. Sneak out of the house when she's not looking. But I can't do that, Puvis, dear. She'll disown me. I'll be disinherited. We'd both starve. Oh, confound the woman. If she only weren't so big-headed and so rich. I've tried to persuade her, Puvis, but she won't listen. She won't listen to words, perhaps. There are other ways of persuading people. Therese, promise me that if anything should happen, you will come to me by the next boat. Of course. But what could happen? Don't worry. I have a plan. A neat little plan. And it shouldn't take too long to work out. Hmm. A rather ambiguous conversation, if you'll permit me to say so, Madame de Pavan. What makes you so sure your husband will try to poison you at dinner tonight? First, because it's his last meal at home. The boat train leaves at 9.30. And second, because I found this bottle in the waste paper basket in his study. Hmm. A pharmacist bottle with a label partly torn off. The letters P-O-I-S, still visible. P-O-I-S. Holmes, if you add O-N, that spells poison. Brilliant, my dear Watson, positively scintillating. There seems to be a small bit of white crystalline powder still left at the bottom of the bottle. What do you make of it, Watson? Well, from the, from the look and the smell, it might be Epsom salts. Holmes, what are you doing? Tasting it. What? Uh, just the slightest suspicion of a taste, Watson. Yes, it's slightly acrid and metallic. That, too, might be Epsom salts. Want to try it, Watson? No, 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 thanks. I'm not interested in tasting anything that comes in a bottle marked poison. <laughs> perhaps you're right. Yes, I think perhaps we should try some more extensive tests before we make up our minds about the contents of this bottle, madame. I don't care what you do, but don't be late for dinner. We dine at 7.30. The address is 49 Rathbone Place. You enter from Oxford Street. It's close to Tottenham Court Road. We shall be there, madame. On the dot. Rathbone Place. The name sounds vaguely familiar. Yes, you may have heard me mention it, Watson. The street is named after a distant uh, connection of mine. I say, just what did you find in the bottom of that bottle, Holmes? Antimony. Antimony? But that's deadly poison. Quite. It's also a constituent of many quack pills. Monsieur de Pavan may be dosing himself for anything from blood pressure to hangnails. Well, just the same, it doesn't improve my appetite to know we're dining at a house where there's poison about. Uh, what if he gets in the wrong person's soup? Perhaps we should have brought your stomach pump. Don't be indelicate, Holmes. Personally, I shall follow Madame de Pavan's example and eat or drink nothing that doesn't come from a community dish. Very sensible, Watson. Very sensible indeed. Yes, here we are. Number 49. Give the bell a pull, Watson. There's a good chap. Right, uh, well, I must say there's nothing particularly sinister looking about the house, eh, Holmes? Nice, cheerful little ruffled curtains. Yes. 
The poisoners have been known to live in the most innocuous surroundings. Holmes, I do wish you'd refrain from indulging your sepulchral sense of humor. Yes, sir. I, um, that is, if Madame de Pavan lives here, I believe we're expected. Ah, but this is a great honor. Come in, gentlemen, come in. Who will believe me when I say I have the honor of entertaining the world's master detective and his ami, the good doctor? Ah, then, then you, you recognize us? Naturally. Who does not know the great Sherlock Holmes? Besides, my wife has taken great trouble to impress upon me just who it is she has invited to dinner. Oh, that's certainly forthright of her, eh, Holmes? Madame is a forthright person. She says what she thinks, even when she changes her mind. But will you not step into the parlor? We shall have a glass of sherry. Madame and her charming daughter will be down directly. Uh, thank you, but you know, I don't, don't think that, that is... Uh, not before dinner. I, I mean, it might take away my appetite. Oh, come, come, Dr. Watson. It is such excellent sherry. Here, I pour from the decanter for you. For the great Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And for myself. Oh, well, well, in that case, eh, Holmes? Uh, Sunday, monsieur, to your continued good health. But what do you wait for? Huh? Bottoms up, as they say. <laughs> I see. You wish to see if I drink first. Very well, so. You see, it is quite harmless. Well, that's a relief. Uh, may I say, monsieur, it is no secret to me why you are here. My poor wife thinks she is being poisoned, and she suspects me. Well, that's dashed frank of you, I must say. Why not be frank, Monsieur Doctor? I have nothing to hide. Yes, you are a medical man. You must realize that many women, particularly if they are well-bred, and shall we say, a bit high-strung, when they come to a certain age, they develop curious ideas. You do not know how quickly Madame Pavin recovers from her little eccentricities. You know how these things are, Dr. Watson? No, yes, yes. I must say, if the lady is suffering from a... Well, an idée fix, you're very wise to go away and give it a chance to blow over. Uh, you are planning to go alone, Monsieur de Parfum? But, of course. What about an accompanist? Oh, you mean there is. I think at this time it is best she stay with her mother. After all, I do not want to leave her entirely alone. She might develop a melancholia. Very understanding of you, Monsieur de Parfum. Ah, but I am a man of the world. I have traveled. You see, I know many women. I understand them better, perhaps, than you... Uh, Englishman. Perhaps. And now, if you will excuse a moment, I must see if Madame needs my assistance. Her maid is not very strong, and since Madame has put on a few pounds, she needs a man to, what you call, hoop her up the back. Uh, please do pour yourself more sherry in my absence. Now that you know it is safe. Au revoir, monsieur. Well, Watson, what do you make of our friend, the violinist? Well, you know, Holmes, he may be perfectly right. Madame de Pavan may be suffering from a slight form of female hysteria. Then in that case, why has he booked two passages to France? See? Here are the pickets sticking out from beneath this blotter. One is for tonight. The other is for a week from now. <laughs> So, Sherlock Holmes didn't think Monsieur Pavard was as innocent as he pretended to be, Doctor. <laughs> no, Mr. Harris, don't ask me what Holmes thought. No one ever knew that, not even I, until afterwards. Well, pretty soon the maid announced... There you are, sir. Uh, what's that? The sherry flips you ordered, Dr. Watson, for you and Mr. Harris. Oh, oh yes, thank you, Kitty. Right on cue. Well, Dr. Watson, this is what I call hospitality. Yes, I thought we might uh, take a breather and uh, drink a toast to our sponsor's continued success. Right on. 
Find local independent stores in every community. Report increasing demand for Clippercraft. So every day, even more millions of men are becoming acquainted with unrivaled Clippercraft values. These values are the result of the Clippercraft plan, which is just about the best possible example of the true American way in production. The famous Clippercraft plan concentrates the buying power of 1036 of the nation's finest stores from coast to coast. Perfectly amazing economies result, and here's the answer. You can secure truly fine Clippercraft suits this spring for only 40 and 45 dollars. And superb top coats in fine coverts and worsted gabardine at only 40 and 45 dollars. Sport jackets for only 26.50. And tropicals at 33.75 to 40 dollars. See these remarkable values tomorrow. Yes, selling expensive clothes at inexpensive low prices at the nation's finest stores is the great big idea behind the Clippercraft plan. That's why men who know insist on Clippercraft clothes. So be sure to visit the Clippercraft store in your city. These leading stores in the metropolitan area are proud to add their names to Clippercraft in your suits, top coats, sport jackets, and tropicals. In Manhattan, Saks 34th, Broadway at 34th. John Wanamaker Men's Stores, Broadway at 8th and 67 Liberty Street. In Brooklyn, Abraham and Strauss. In Newark, New Jersey, Boulevard Men's Shop, Kresge, Newark. And in Jamaica, the B&B Clothes Shop, 16408 Jamaica Avenue. Well, now that we've had our pause for refreshment, suppose we return to our story, huh? Fair enough, Doctor. As I was saying, pretty soon the Pavan's little parlour-maid announced dinner. Holmes and I repaired to the dining room where we found Madame de Pavan and her stepdaughter, a rather toothy female, already seated at either end of the table. Monsieur Pavan stood in back of his chair at the far side. Madame, who was ladling soup out of a large tureen, her napkin tucked well over her bodice, turned and pointed imperiously to the two empty chairs at the near side. You sit here, Mr. Holmes, next to me. Dr. Watson, you sat there, next to Therese. Oh, delighted, I'm sure. I'm afraid this soup isn't as thick as it should be. Old Nanny isn't the best cook in the world, but at least I know that it won't give me a stomachache. Oh, darling, you have such a delightful sense of humor. Soup of the evening, beautiful soup. You know the songs from Alice in Wonderland, Mr. Holmes? They have been so charmingly set to music by Lisa Lehman. Never mind Alice in Wonderland, Pubis. You may pour out the claret. Certainly, my dear. No, not from that bottle. The one that's not been opened, with a cork still sealed. Perhaps Dr. Watson will do the honors. He looks like a person who could handle a bottle. No, what's that? I confess quite freely that I have never been able to master that little object you call the corkscrew. Oh, of course, if you like. Here it is. Aha, a magnificent vintage, madame. My father laid down quite a respectable cellar before he died. Bravo, bravo. And now to add further to the festivity of this occasion, I have a special surprise for my dear little wife. Oh, what's that? Butter. You may not know it, Mr. Holmes, but ordinarily I do not approve of butter on the dinner table. Bread, I believe, should be eaten in the continental fashion, with just a pinch of salt. My wife, however, bless her dear little heart, has a weakness for butter, even though it is forbidden by the doctor. However, tonight, being my last meal at home, and to honor two such distinguished guests, I, well, I myself went out and bought a roll of butter. And here it is, in a beautiful silver butter dish. 
Oh, desperately. But I, I really don't think oh, I ought to... come, come, my dear. There is no possible danger. It is all in one piece. You can cut off your portion for yourself, and we will all follow suit. Mm, does look so good. I assure you, my dear, it's the very best butter. That, too, is from Alice in Wonderland, Mr. Hope. Oh, yes, that, that tea party. Another, shall we say, unusual meal? Ah, delightful, delightful. Allow me, my dear, I'll cut you a piece of butter from this end. No, thank you. I'll do it myself. From the other end. As you please. And now, for our guests. One, two pieces. And another piece for little Therese, who is almost as fond of butter as her charming mama. Oh, Pubis. And last but not least, I too shall indulge. There. Now, my dear, if you will pass the bread. Oh, uh, allow me. <gasps> oh, oh, my God. Watson, how could you? You've spilled your wine all over Mr. Therese's frock. Clumsy fool. But I wasn't anywhere near the your glass. Your best blue frock, Therese. It's an outrage. That will do, Pubis. Therese's frock isn't that important. If it's spoiled, I'll buy her a new one. I apologize, my friend, madame. There are times when he's like a great big Newfoundland dog. What? I know you didn't mean to, old boy. No, no. As my wife says, what is it, Therese? Therese will have many more. I apologize if I have been hasty. My nerves, you understand, before a concert tour are always a little on the uh, edges, as you say in English. But come, let us enjoy the meal, if I may trouble you for the bread, Mr. Holmes. I certainly. Well, bon appétit, as you say in French. Another cup of coffee, Pubis? No, 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 my dear. Many thanks. Excellent meal. I only hope I shall uh, not regret crossing the channel. Let us hope that you will not regret many things crossing the channel. A very cryptic remark, Mr. Holmes. But if by any chance anything should uh, occur, you are here to prove my conscience is clear, Nesper. Nothing like having the greatest of all detectives as a witness to one's innocence. You two may know what you're talking about, but I assure you it's gibberish to the rest of us. Beg pardon, madame. Yes, what is it? The master's carriage, the one he ordered to take him to the station, is waiting outside. Mm, you, yes, I must not miss my train. Pardon my hasty departure, but you know how it is. My dear, did you pack my goggle? It's in your medicine case, Pewis, with your toothwash and your hair tonic and your bismuth and your eye wash. My husband, Mr. Holmes, is a veritable traveling chemist shop. Mm. I hope he carries the uh, antidotes for all of his medicines. Antidotes? You speak in parables, Mr. Holmes. And why should I use an antidote? I have merely one of my wretched sore throats coming. Ah, well. Au revoir, Dr. Watson. Au revoir, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Bon voyage, Monsieur de Pavan. Morning. Well, I must say that was a curious dinner party last night. It was for breakfast. Kippers, and don't monopolize them. Mmm. Mmm, tasty. Well, I gather Madame de Provence survived the evening. I left word that she was to send for me immediately if she felt the slightest qualms. And if you ask me, Monsieur de Provence was quite correct in his diagnosis. Pass the toast, please. Yeah. The old girl's stomach aches and suspicions were probably a mild form of female hysteria. I wasn't concerned in the least for Madame de Pavan's safety, Watson. It was her husband I rather wondered about. Uh, what do you mean? You haven't read the morning papers, I take it. Here, take a look at this item. 
famous violinist dies in Channel Crossing. Puris de Bavan succumbs to nausea and convulsions. Good Lord, what... Yes, I rather thought he might. As I suspected, the butter was poisoned. Antimony. Poisoned? Careful, Watson, you spilled your coffee. But I ate some of that butter. You ate some of it. So did everyone else. Calm yourself. The poison was all in the end portion where Monsieur de Pavan so carefully put it. The piece that Madame de Pavan cut off for herself. Yes, but he offered her the other end. Naturally, Watson. He knew she'd be contrary. Monsieur de Pavan was a very shrewd judge of his wife's character. Great Scott, suppose she hadn't turned it around. One of the rest of us might have had the poison sliced. No, Watson, I rather imagine if that had happened, Monsieur de Pavan would have continued serving from the harmless end and left the poison bit instead of serving from the other end. It was this, uh, shall we say, change of direction that made me suspect he was up to no good. Yes, but look here, Holmes, it still doesn't make sense. It wasn't Madame de Pavan who died, it was her husband. Naturally. Why do you think I upset that glass of claret over the daughter's dress? I might have known it was you. I did it in order to create a diversion so I could shift Monsieur and Madame's butter plates without anyone being the wiser. Of course, even there was no proof that the butter was poisoned. I did it just in case. Then you didn't actually know the butter was poisoned until you read the morning's paper? Oh, no, Watson. But antimony, as you doubtless remember, is rather a slow-acting poison. One of the first symptoms, however, is a soreness of the throat. I suspected the little Frenchman had taken a dose of his own poison when he inquired about his gargle. That's why I advised him to use an antidote, remember? You think he understood that warning? Quite. Well, but then why didn't he take the antidote? He knew we were onto him, Watson. Rather than face the consequences of his crime, he decided to let nature take its course. Yes, um, spear me another kipper, Watson. If you can spare it. That was a lurid dinner party, Dr. Watson. Yes, Mr. Harris. Meals with Sherlock Holmes were often rather rough on the nervous system. Oh, the doses of bicarbonate I used to consume. Well, that's neither here nor there. I dare say you'd like to inquire about next week's story, Mr. Harris. That's right, Dr. Watson. What are we to have next week? No more poison butter. That I can promise you. No, next week I think I'll tell you how Holmes and I encountered a strange 17th century highwayman on the wilds of Hampstead Heath. He was known as Jack-O-Lantern because he carried a lighted skull for a lantern. There was another Jack in the story as well, a Jack of Diamonds. The makers of Clippercraft clothes and 1036 leading stores from coast to coast have brought you another in the new series of broadcasts featuring the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Our stories are based upon the character of Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is played by John Stanley, Dr. Watson by Alfred Shirley, and the dramatizations are by Edith Miser. Sherlock Holmes is produced and directed by Basil Lochran, with special music by Albert Berman. you don't know your Clippercraft dealer, write Clippercraft, 200 Fifth Avenue, New York City.
Be sure to listen next Sunday to Sherlock Holmes in The Return of the Jack of Diamonds. Cy Harris speaking for Clipper Craft Clothes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And that's the adventures of Sherlock Holmes with a case of the very best butter starring John Stanley and Alfred Shirley as heard over the Mutual Network April 18, 1948. Stick around. I'll give you our lineup for episode 92 of the Classic Radio Theater after this short break. Next time on episode 92 of the Classic Radio Theater, brought to you by the Bradford Exchange, we'll hear two horror episodes of Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Lorre, so don't miss it. To reach me and to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, visit ClassicRadioClub.com. Be sure to tune into our next show and make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts to never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.